Okay, so uh, by way of uh, introduction today, because uh, we're, we're also relating uh, this to the theme of race and racism. When I think more deeply about race, I, I think I know conceptually that race is a social construct. I think we all do. Now at the core, we're all human beings, and in that way, uh, we are all the same. But there is something about race that separates and divides, no matter what mythology about multiculturalism we like to believe. So race, although it's a social construct, has real life implications, and particularly for those who are racialized, and most particularly for those who are black or indigenous. And we're focusing right now mainly on anti-black racism because in our own region, the greater Toronto area, uh, black people are a very large population. Uh, there were 442,000 black people in the uh, Metro Toronto census area in 2016. So that's 40% of Canada's black population and it's 7.5% of the GTA population. That's a very large number. <laughs> Um, so this is not a sociology pr presentation, so I don't have all the charts, numbers, and facts with me, but I do know from, you know, my own reading and professional experience uh, that black people are disproportionately involved with, uh, let's say, like the child welfare system, uh, disproportionately suspended from schools, uh, disproportionately arrested in the criminal justice system, uh, disproportionately stopped by police officers, and as we saw last week, segregated physically into more impoverished geographic areas and so much more. So I think the undeniable fact is that for many black people, uh, the color of their skin does lead to differential treatment of various sorts. I, I mean, I think many people, including all of us, are genuinely people of goodwill and don't have conscious or intentional animus towards black people. But most often, I think, this is the result of a safe distance and separation uh, from regular daily interactions with Black people, and especially those who live in these segregated areas of the city. So from this distance, we can express empathy and goodwill for them. And I would say that this distance and separation is not necessarily intentional and conscious on our part. Uh, They're fueled by what are on the surface non-racial considerations, right? Good neighborhoods, good schools, safety, uh, location. So I'll call these things uh, factors of desirability. If I had time, I would have had a slide for this. Factors of desirability, something I came up with. Uh, these factors of desirability have literally and physically structured our society and region. So those who have been able to successfully access these factors of desirability have clustered together into these desirable neighborhoods, while those who cannot have been clustered in less desirable neighborhoods. And that's just one example. Uh, in many other ways too, there have been these kind of divisions, socially, economically, culturally. So key question for me then is uh, what shapes and creates these factors of desire? So I argue that there are normative factors that shape what is desirable. So in other words, factors of desirability are shaped by the norms we espouse. Last week, we talked a lot about norms, right? So these norms may stem indeed from our human nature, 
but I think they're also shaped by the discourse that takes place in our communities, in the media, you know, among family members, friends, and coworkers. In other words, what people talk about as desirable, that's what shapes our norms, right? And uh, so some key questions for us in this study of Galatians is really this. Uh, can we decenter these normative factors? You know, can our norms and therefore our desire be shaped and reformed by our life in Christ? And these are two questions really at the center uh, of some of our study. And uh, these questions are theme for tonight. Okay, can we really decenter our normative factors? Um, let's think of it this way as well. Because under our normative factors, what would it take for black people to be considered acceptable for us? Enough for us to be community with them. Would they have to, yeah, have behavioral changes to behave like us? Would there have to be changes in their families and family structures and the stability of them? Do they need a good education? Would they have to have a good job and career? Because let us think frankly and honestly. You know, if black people are kind of isolated individuals in the crowd, uh, and they're well adapted to the majority culture. I mean, is that when we're comfortable with them? But what if we are in a majority black setting? Do we feel at ease? I mean, have we even put ourselves in, in that situation? And if not, why not? And here's an even more challenging question. What if it were our children? Would we be okay having them in a majority black setting? What sorts of immediate thoughts would enter our minds? Or what feelings would we feel? And even more poignantly, what if some, one of them or some of them started dating someone who is black, right? If we're honest, can we not say that our norms have been shaped really by white normativity and that there is an unconscious bias against what is black? That there is an innate suspicion against black people? The effect of dominant normativity on marginalized groups. So have we as a society, uh, to use Paul's, St. Paul's words, enslaved black people under the norms of our society, which as discussed in session one, are governed by the standards of white normativity. So to give you an example, at the most physical level, black people uh, are targeted. It's a known fact uh, based on data that black people are many times more likely to be stopped and pulled over by police than non-black people, even when there's no active criminal investigation going on. And that was a whole issue with this thing called carding. Uh, it, carding were, was random stops on the street by the police and recording personal information about the individual. And this practice especially targeted black male youths and contributed to corrosive relations between the youth of black communities and the police. So their skin color and neighborhood res of residents combined deviated from white normativity. And so they were attributed, I think, with perceptions of greater criminality and they were therefore viewed with more suspicion. This differentiation and treatment with suspicion takes place in many areas uh, of life too. I mentioned some of them, schools, social welfare systems, employment. And so in another way, factors that are um, opposite uh, of, uh, of the factors of desirability and white normativity, they're often attributed to black people. So look at these dual polarities, right? 
educated versus uneducated, proper behavior versus improper behavior, lawful citizens versus lawless, trusted versus to be feared. So look at the right side of that chart, right? When those factors are combined, there becomes embedded in societal imagination a set of norms that are deviant from the accepted norms, which are those on the left. And uh, when these uh, perceptions are ingrained in the social imagination, it manifests in systemic disadvantage for those people with those characteristics. And in our society, we've often attributed those to black people. And if you look, remember from session one, these polarities are similar to how the Galatians were construed by the dominant Roman power, right? In the Roman imagination, the Galatians represented those negative aspects of the dual polarities. So what are the effects of this dominant white normativity on marginalized groups and especially the black population? Are we not, keep, uh, to use Paul's language, keeping black people enslaved to our norms of white normativity? Right? In history, I mean, black people were literally and physically enslaved, but now through all these systems and institutions in our society, uh, the collective apparatus of our society, are we not keeping black people economically, socially, and perhaps spiritually enslaved? Freedom for, from our own enslavement to our norms. So in our church, you know, at St. Timothy, in our church's long study of the Bible, we've learned that freedom uh, begins with freedom in our minds, in our hearts, right? Uh, we talk a lot about this spiritual freedom. And uh, this is what Viktor Frankl uh, discovered when he was a captive in the concentration camps of Germany during World War II. Uh, he concluded that people may not have control over their physical and social circumstances, but they can find freedom in their minds and find meaning in life nonetheless. That's why his book was titled, uh, uh, oh, I forget, Meaning in, meaning in Life or uh, Man's Search for Meaning. That's right. right. So this is what the Galatians experienced when Paul came to them with the gospel. They found spiritual freedom from the enslavement to Roman normativity a normativity that kept them perpetually as the suspicious other. Uh, we learn in chapter 3 that the Galatians uh, received the Spirit. Uh, they started with the Spirit and experienced so much. They experienced the power of the Spirit of Christ, and this Spirit worked miracles among them. Right? I think this was a powerful experience of freedom in Christ. Uh, Paul came to them with some kind of physical infirmity. Uh, some interpreters translate it as deformity. But Paul re recounts that the Galatians did not scorn or despise me, but welcomed me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. They, the experience they had and the bond that was formed through this experience was so tight that Paul believes they would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So uh, the Galatians, they heard the message and came to believe that in Christ, they were loved and that in Christ, God gave his life for them, regardless of their inherent worth. So they and Paul were spiritually bonded by this powerful experience they had in the spirit. I mean, it kind of reminds me of some of the experiences we had at our high sea retreats where we are bonded together through this spiritual experience. But now, at this point in chapters 3 and 4, they seem to have lost sight of this, right? Uh, 
Paul goes on to say, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish? Having started with the spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? These are harsh words, right? And then again, he says, what has become of the goodwill you felt? My little children for whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Meaning it was formed, but it's no longer. I wish I were present with you now and could change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Right? The issue was this. The Galatians had found freedom from the norms of Roman normativity and all those negative connotations and the mental and spiritual enslavement that entailed but they had now reverted uh, to a new enslavement. Now, this time under Jewish norms. So these two chapters describe some of Paul's own journey to freedom from his prior enslavement to those Jewish norms. Paul recounted in chapter one how he had been so zealous for the traditions of his ancestors. He had been the epitome of one who lived by the Jewish norms. And in Philippians, he talks about that too, his prior life, a Pharisee of Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin, right? His whole existence had been staked on the upholding and preservation of these norms. And that is why he persecuted the church so much, because the church was really deviating from those norms, but the revelation that he received, which we talked about last week in chapter 2, this revelation uh, from God radically broke his way of thinking and disrupted his norms. Central to the issue of Jewish normativity that Paul is speaking so strongly against is the centrality of the Torah or the law. Right? The Galatians were told that to be proper believers in Christ, their new life had to be subsumed under the norms of Jewish belief. And at the center of this belief was that uh, uh, the Torah uh, was at the center of that. And the clearest manifestation of the Torah's norms was male circumcision. That was the sign of one being uh, a son or daughter of the Torah, of the law. But what Paul believed now is that Christ has become the center and has decentered everything else, including the Torah. Now, this was a very radical move uh, for, for Jews. This is why Paul eventually became very persecuted, opposed, and almost killed by fellow Jews numerous times. I mentioned in session one that Galatians is full of dual polarities. And in chapters three and four, here are some, okay? There's law versus promise, curse versus blessing, flesh versus spirit, slavery versus freedom, captivity versus liberation, imprisonment to sin versus adoption, guardianship versus fullness of time, progression versus radical break, and human history versus divine narrative. I mean, all of these are polarities in just these two chapters. So I'm going to try to make clear what these mean. But uh, for Paul, it's very clear. There's a clear duality. And he's, uh, he's saying, basically, the Galatians have 
uh, they found the things on the right, but now they're reverting back to the things on the left. The most explicit juxtaposition is, uh, that we see in the text is between the promise and the law, right? So as I said, the law was central in the life of Jews. The law was synonymous with the Exodus, right? Which was etched in their psyche, that event of God leading them from uh, captivity in Egypt uh, across the Red Sea. I mean, that narrative was etched into their psyche and that was the central event that really characterized who they were as Jews. And that's why when they got exiled into Babylon and whatnot, they always looked back to that event, right? It was so central. And the law was given in this aftermath of the Exodus. And this was to be their guide in life, a sign of their covenant with God. And so Moses was that God ordained mediator through whom the law was given. So the law, Moses, and like the Mosaic tradition were sacred and central to the life and identity of the Jews. But now this guy, Paul, is radically decentering the law and that whole Mosaic tradition. Can you see why this is like such a radical, radical step for them? So Paul is now saying Christ is the real or new center. So many of the many Jewish Christians, many uh, Jews who are Messianic Jews who believed in Jesus, they believed in uh, a, this progression in history. So the, the two bottom left terms, progression in human history of the covenant that God had made with the people of Israel. And that Jesus was this linear climax of that covenant. So for them, it was a no break. It was a continuous flow, right? So this progression played out in the real life history of the Jews, right? Exodus uh, into the promised land, the era of judges, kings like King David and Solomon. God was like, this was part of the thing. And then the prophets and then their exile, Babylon and all that stuff. So they believe there was continuity in history, starting with Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses and the prophets. And so to believe in Christ for these people was to place oneself within that stream of human history, the history of God's chosen people, the Jews, right? So this is why they believe that the Galatians needed to become full Jews. But Paul believes that Christ constitutes a radical break, second uh, bottom from the right, a radical break with this history and is in fact not part of human history at all. Rather, Christ is part of a divine narrative, the bottom right word, that is above and beyond human history. And in fact, this divine narrative was given birth in the promise to Abraham. So Paul now decenters the law and makes the promise and divine narrative the new center. And so Christ is the fullest expression of this promise that was given to Abraham, right? Christ has come in the fullness of time. So that time has now come. And the way to access this promise is not by allegiance to the law, which he describes as part of human history, but rather by faith, simply believing the promise. Because that is what Abraham did, right? All he did was believe. And that is what we are to do. Believe in the new life made possible by Christ. And so he goes on, right? Paul, he doesn't view the law itself as a bad thing. 
you know, is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. But to Paul, the law was merely a temporary necessity. It was kind of a guardrail against the sinfulness of humanity. Right? Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came. That law, while more of a, it was a necessary thing to guard against the excesses of human nature, right? Because we know how human nature can be. But it did not nullify the promise that God made to Abraham. And in this divine narrative, the inheritance of this promise would go not to those under the law, but to those who have faith in the promise now made complete by Christ. Okay, okay you see what uh, Paul is getting at? The law, it could only guard against the excess of the sin. It could not make one righteous. Okay? In other words, uh, the law couldn't free one from the power of sin. It was too powerful. That's why in chapter one, he calls it this uh, present evil age. Uh, uh, the law can't take us away from that. And that is why the law actually became a curse, right? That was one of the things in the polarities. Because the law, what the law did was it revealed the shortcomings of all of our efforts. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, right? For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. That's from Leviticus. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And whoever does the works of the law will live by them, right? And so in other words, to live by them is to set yourself up for failure. That's what Paul is saying. The law is an oppressive reminder of our enslavement to sin. So only in Christ are we freed from that curse, right? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by hanging on a tree. That, Jews consider that a curse. So Jesus became a curse. But in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles or nations so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Okay, you see what? So in other words, Paul is saying it's, uh, we're going from a curse to blessing. Okay, through Christ, who became that curse, but through the resurrection and whatnot became actually a blessing so that we can actually receive this promise that God had ordained. You, you see all how these polarities are playing out? Uh, the law was like a temporary period of guardianship. You know, I used to do some wills and estates law. You know, when someone's a minor, they're under the authority of a guardian. And so Paul likens this, this state to being the, like the status of a slave, even though they're the rightful heirs. Uh, now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. <laughs> Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian uh, until, uh, well, I don't think it's until the law came, until, I forget, faith came or something like that. Uh, so in Christ, that curse has been transformed to a blessing. And he also then uses the allegory of Hagar and Sarah, right? These are the two women, uh, if, if, you're, if you recall, uh, by which Abraham had children. Remember, Abraham, God had promised Abraham would have uh, an offspring with Sarah, his wife, but they're so old, it wasn't happening. And so finally, they uh, decided to have a baby through Hagar, the handmaiden of Sarah, right? And so Hagar represents this path of human history. You know, as you know, um, Hagar represents the empirically sound path, the logical path, the path that one could see, right? Because uh, she was fertile, she was young. 
this is the path of uh, the flesh, of human history, and that is the path of the law. That's what Paul is talking about in this allegorical story. Sarah, on the other hand, represents the path of the promise. Right? So their son Isaac represented the child of the promise. And the promise is the path that is not readily seen through human eyes or by human history. Uh, the promise doesn't conform to empirical realities. It is something birthed, birthed by divine initiative. Okay. So the promise represents this divine narrative. And the good news is that this divine narrative has now become a reality in Christ. Okay, so these are all like, you know, this dense theology Paul's talking about. Very deep thought here. And he's really reformulating um, uh, traditional Jewish thinking that he used to espouse. So what is the implication of all of this that Paul is talking about, right? He's saying basically there's nothing that anyone can really do to attain worth in God's eyes. Rather, one's worth is affirmed in the love of God shown through Christ. And this is the promise of God, that God grants the spirit to those who have faith those who believe in God's love for them. And, uh, and that makes Christ the, the new normativity that decentralizes everything else. All previous uh, notions of worth, uh, all other norms are cast aside in Christ. Right? This promise now is not restricted to certain peoples. No longer uh, exclusive peoples based on ancestry or other valuations of worth. It's available to all solely on the basis of faith. Everyone is now clothed with Christ, right? So the real implication for Paul is that there's now one community in Christ that is not differentiated from previous markers of difference. Right? And this is the famous passage. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So you see how he's connecting Christ to this promise that stems from Abraham. Okay, so that slide, that's kind of a fancy uh, terminology, but let me explain what I mean by this. So prior to the revelation that um, Paul received, there was a definite Jew and definite Greek. They all were not one, okay? But in Christ, uh, he realized that these markers of difference were fundamentally and radically altered into a unity. Thing is, this unity did not entail uniformity. See, his point in this letter is that the Galatians did not need to become like Jews. Nor, on the other hand, did the Jews need to disavow the law and their Jewishness. He's not saying that either. Each could retain their distinctiveness, but their unity was found in this common experience of Christ, who was God's love given to all regardless of their worth. You see what I'm saying? In Christ, they received and experienced the Spirit. And in the Spirit, each person experienced life-changing newness. Right? In Christ, uh, Paul's values, norms, and way of life were radically altered. So they weren't just tweaked or incrementally changed. 
there was a complete rupture of his thought and way of living. And in this way, the spirit had invaded his life and led to a complete break from the way he thought and lived in the past. Remember in session one, I introduced that notion, that apocalyptic gospel of a invasion and a complete rupture and break. That's what happened to Paul's way of life and thinking. So through the Christ experience, he reinterpreted his whole faith and beliefs. And uh, so now from the vantage point of Christ and the spirit of Christ, he came up with uh, all these reformulations, comparisons of the law and promise. I mean, at least to my knowledge, no one uh, had made this type of distinction before, right? Like I said, if anything, law was always seen as a historical progression of the promise, uh, continuity. But through his experience in Christ, he saw a disjuncture between the two. So Christ was the central key uh, by which he reinterpreted his life, his values, his norms, and how he would live. Uh, so some questions that I had. Thank you for bearing with me. See, this is, there's a lot of dense things. So I'm trying to unpack a lot of this for us uh, in one little session. But has Christ and his spirit invaded our lives in such a way as to radically disorient our previous views and ways of life? and lead us into a new life and way of thinking and living. Sorry, Pastor Dave always calls me verbose, and I can see why. Uh, is not our calling as a church to live into this spirit who radically transforms and alters the way we think, see the world, and act in it? And I'm going to leave the slide for a bit. Would this invasion of the spirit into our lives not lead us to envision our calling uh, in this racially stratified society in fundamentally new ways. Were you all able to kind of absorb this verbose set of questions? Okay. Uh, we'll try to post some of this later. <laughs> so one of my questions is, what does it really take to be one, right? And uh, you know, the Christ shape of self-giving. I mean, what, how does this look or work itself out in real life practice? Uh, and Paul's approach to the Galatians offers hints, and so do his writings in other letters. So take the comparison he makes in this, that grand verse. Right? Jews and Greeks, slave and free, male and female. In each of those polarities, there is a stronger party and a weaker party. Right? This is not just like nice fairy tale hokey pokey. They are not equal at the onset uh, uh, from the normative standards of the world. Right? At least in this uh, dichotomy, the Jews were superior, free is superior, and male was superior. Right? So what does it take then uh, when there's a stronger and weaker party for them to be one? I think there's two things, right? The stronger party has to be willing to relinquish their power and privilege. And two, the weaker party must find a sense of empowerment, dignity, and worth. Right? In our human society, if you think carefully about it, 
really think carefully about it. The onus often falls upon the weaker party to do that latter work, right? These works, try harder, study harder, grind it out, etc. These are all, that's all, that's all language of focusing on number two, right? And when they fail to do so, we actually kind of blame them. You should have tried harder. You should have studied harder. We don't focus really on number one. But in St. Paul's uh, new thinking, he places the onus on more on number one, the stronger party. They are to relinquish their privilege and power for the purpose of lifting up the weaker, right? He said this in 1 Corinthians, right? On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectful members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectful members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Uh, this thinking, it's not just his own philosophy that he developed. It comes from a life that is intimately in Christ in the spirit i mentioned in session one how this language of in christ is so prevalent in paul's thought uh, this in christ thing was not just nice language it was his actual true reality his whole life took shape in christ and it was shaped by christ and by who christ was right he used the words clothed yourselves with christ right and elsewhere he talks about the aroma of christ so in other words his whole being Thinking and action was rooted in Christ and who Christ was. And so some theologians came up with these words, uh, Christoformity and Christopraxis. Okay? Uh, living our lives in almost like conformity with Christ and our practice of life in, according to how Christ lived it. So our lives are to take the shape of Christ, right? The ultimate shape of Christ's life then was that of self-giving. And this new community was to take this shape of self-giving, right? This is what Paul says in uh, Philippians. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So to clothe the weaker members, uh, I am almost done here, so, sorry. To clothe the weaker members in our society with greater honor and to have the mind of Christ who emptied himself is to live a life in Christ. That was the shape that our lives are to take individually and collectively. So we all need to be spiritually rooted and continually renewed by the spirit um, to take the shape of Christ. So to be truly one, to go take it further then, is to be concerned with justice. Not just justice from a distance, but justice in community and in solidarity. Right? To be one means to actually be with others. So it means we don't just feel bad for them from a distance. It requires being with those who suffer. And it doesn't just involve us saying, oh, that's too bad, I hope things get better. It means we move from compassion to justice for dignity, 
for love that's manifested in fair treatment. And it's not justice from a distance. Uh, it, it means, um, yeah, our quest for justice occurs with those who suffer. As uh, Paul said before, when one member suffers, we all suffer together. That's the form our quest for justice takes. And what's, what is the place of relationship other than in the church, right? This is the whole thing St. Paul is talking about. It's in this body of Christ where we are all one, stronger and weaker, continuously seeking the betterment of each other. Because the whole world itself, we know it, the whole world may not be able to be one like this. That's the utopian vision, right? But in the church, as those who have found new life in Christ, we are to be one especially with those who are weaker in society and those who suffer. And so that is a radical calling for the life of the church and those who live in Christ. It's called by grace through revelation. What is the spirit revealing to us? What are the implications of these chapters for us? How might we be one with our black brothers and sisters and also those who suffer? What attitude changes do we need? What changes in thinking do we need? What actions do we need to take? And I was reflecting a lot on this duality of God of history versus God of promise. And also in that context, the path of Korean people and the Korean church, right? Divine narrative is rooted in the promise in human history, rooted in empirical realities, you know, the empirical realities of our history, we all know they've been very difficult. And I think they still surround us today. I really see this in the ministry that I've been part of, right? The question is, will we simply be enslaved to our empirical realities? Or are we heirs of the promise where God really made a way out of no way? I mean, I would argue that the Korean people on the whole have been more or less enslaved to human history. And that fear continues to shape uh, us today. But if we were to place ourselves in the divine narrative, that of the promise, then where would God be leading us? Where might God be leading us? And I wonder, has God not brought us here uh, to be in solidarity uh, with those who's, who struggle and suffer here? Because I've seen that my experience, uh, you know, working with black communities as a criminal lawyer, and then my recent interactions, you know, people like Paulette Brown and members of our church, telling me that there is a place for um, Koreans, uh, those who are not white, uh, here in Canada. Uh, we're not saddled with uh, some, much of the baggage that come in their relations with uh, white communities. And when, if we express solidarity, they are more than receptive more receptive to our efforts. So I'm wondering if perhaps this is where the spirit is calling us if we are in Christ. So I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but it's up to us as a church to be in Christ, to listen to the spirit and to be led by the spirit. Okay. So thank you for bearing with me. That's, it was so dense. I couldn't help it. I had to find a way to unpack some of these. So some discussion questions. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of material there. You can discuss any of the concepts and ideas that you found interesting. 
And these are just some questions to stimulate our thinking, right? What will it take for us to be a community in relationship and solidarity with our black brothers and sisters and others who struggle? How can we be truly one with those who are those on the margins who are currently distanced and separated from us? And then human history versus divine promise. What is our calling as heirs of the promise? What vision is God placing in your heart for this new community that is formed in Christ? Okay. So, uh, uh, maybe Caitlin, uh, you have the Google Doc or?